Welcome to Thrive Church. We are so happy to have you with us uh, today. I am Judah Thomas, lead pastor here at Thrive. And we are in a series right now called Science and the Bible. Science and the Bible. And, uh, you know, before we get started, I, I just need to kind of put this disclaimer out there because, because number one, there's going to be a lot of information uh, that we cover today, but, uh, but it, it, I couldn't have done it without help. So, you know, some of you may know uh, Mark Maraglino. He's our executive pastor here, and without him, this would not happen because, you know, may, many of you don't know his story, but he was an atheist for years and then be, went on this discovery of kind of the, the truth behind God and science and things like that. So, so anyhow, a lot of this is stuff that he has kind of compiled and helped me with, and I've just kind of cobbled it together into hopefully something that's interesting uh, for you today. But, uh, but specifically, you know, as it refers to science in the Bible, the, the problem is, is that there's this pendulum that tends to swing uh, pretty far in either direction. On, and on one side, we have like, like, like the pure science only, and there is no God, and everything is purely uh, has an explanation to things, and, and, and you're, you're an idiot if you believe in God. And then the pendulum swings to the other side uh, of this thing where, where everybody's like, you know, everything that you need to know is, is in the Bible, and I believe it 100%, and if you don't believe in this, then, then you're an idiot as well. And so, so there's kind of these two sides of things, and so what I want to do is kind of like find somewhere in the middle where we can look at things uh, logically, where we can look at things, understanding what Scripture says, but also not discrediting things that maybe science says, because, you know, this is something that I hope will challenge you if you don't believe in God. It will hopefully challenge you uh, to explore who God is, and if you do believe in God, maybe it'll challenge you as well, because what we don't want to do is we don't want to get wrapped up in in some kind of dogma uh, throughout this whole conversation. So, there's many people in this world, specifically in the scientific world, that, that think that belief in God is simply an emotional response. It's for the, the weak-minded. It's, it's, it's a crutch of sorts. And, and so one of the things that I think is important for us to ponder is can we logically believe in God and logically believe in the Bible? And so last week, we took an examination of the Bible and why uh, I believe that it's true and why I believe that we can build our faith upon it, not simply based on an emotional response, but based on true facts and historical evidence. Because science, at the end of the day, is simply, we talked about this last week, is simply a systematic pursuit of evidence. That's all it is. Systematically pursuing the evidence and allowing it to take you wherever the evidence may lead. As a result of the scientific method, observation and experimentation are critical elements of this. If you cannot observe something and if you cannot perform experiments about it, then the scientific method begins to fall apart. But there's a problem. And the problem in your notes is this, is when you believe something without evidence, that's a religion. Believing something without evidence is religion. Now, many of us who follow Christ say, well, this is not about a religion. It's about a relationship, right? And, 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 and I believe that's because having a relationship with Christ 
is not just taking something without evidence. It's seeing the evidence of God working in our life and basing our beliefs on the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in the transforming power of Jesus Christ. But when something goes beyond the scope of observation and experimentation, then it becomes religion. And unfortunately, that is where many people land, even in so-called sciences, because it's gone beyond what you can observe, and it's gone beyond what you can reliably perform experiments on. In fact, if you examine a lot of modern-day science, it actually requires a great amount of faith to believe in it. And, And the very same scientists that you may encounter in a college or in other situations, places of higher learning, the same scientists who speak against faith, they demand it when it comes to their ideas. They say, just trust me. I I know, so you can trust me. You can have faith in what I say, but you can't have faith in what the Bible says, or you can't have faith in God, but you can have faith in what I say. See, here's the dilemma. Anything that you believe in that you did not personally observe or personally perform the experiments on, it requires a certain level of faith, doesn't it? See, you assume that a certain amount of due diligence was done. For example, that is what the FDA is all about. So the FDA, somebody comes up with some idea, some concoction, some kind of snake oil or something, and say, we think this will cure this problem. And then they have to go through experimentation and testing and a variety of things and spend tons and tons of money to bring it through the certification so at the end of the day, we can take the medication without doing the experiments or the observations ourselves, and we put the trust and faith that they did it and did it properly. This is why many years ago, after having a minor surgery of my own, I was prescribed Vioxx. And I took that, and they said, this is great, this will help you. And then about a year later, they took it off the market and said, well, one of the side effects is death. So we're going to pull that off the market. But I was assuming for that period of time that adequate testing had gone into this particular medication. In your notes, if you're taking them, true science helps us to learn more about God and the universe that he created. See, science and the Bible are not at odds with each other, and they're not even contradictory. See, what is contradictory when we examine these topics, the thing that is contradictory is what we call a worldview. A worldview is the lens by which you look at the world. This is your worldview. Or another way of maybe putting it is this word I keep using called dogma. What dogma is, is it's a principle that is laid down by an authority figure, and they're saying that it's undeniably true. So perhaps you go into a classroom, and an atheist scientist will get up there and say, God is not real. If you believe in God, then you are an idiot. And so he's laying this down, or she's laying this down, as being undeniably true. That is what we call dogma. When you're laying something out without evidence, without experimentation, but you're just laying it out there. So everything we look at in life, whether it's science or otherwise, we tend to look at it through a lens, through a worldview. 
if you're doing experimentation, if you're trying to study the origins of the universe, but you do not believe in God, you are going to look at it through a very specific view. And all of the research and all of the data that you accumulate, you'll filter it through that viewpoint, process that data, and so that it does not conflict with your worldview. Now, similarly... And equally as problematic, on the other side, people who say that they're people of faith will also do the very same thing oftentimes. They'll look at all the same data that this person was looking at it, but they're processing it through a different worldview. And in the end, they come to a vastly different conclusion because they're believing that God is the creator of all things. So, is there a creator or is there not? Well, Clearly, we're in a church. I believe that there is. And here's the thing, though. If there is not a creator, then we are so very, 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 very lucky. Because there's something called the Drake Equation, and that's what this is, that the odds of a livable planet ever having intelligent species, which you are, for the most part, intelligent species, um, the odds of that actually happen is about 1 in 60 billion. One in 60 billion. That's the odds of having a livable planet with intelligent life forms on there. One in 60 billion. The problem is we don't know what one in 60 billion even means. People just throw these numbers out there like, yeah, okay, seems reasonable to me. Well, let's put it like this. If you're going to go out and you're going to buy a ticket and you hope to win the Powerball, okay? We'd all love to win the Powerball. If you win the Powerball, don't forget Thrive Church, okay? Um, The odds of you winning the Powerball are 1 in 292 million, okay? 1 in 200, so that means out of 292 million people that play, you have one chance to win. Now, the odds of the livable planet was 1 in 60 billion. That means to exist, to have a planet such as we have now with life on it, that means that you would have to win the lottery over 200 times. Again, congratulations, and don't forget Thrive Church. Um, Let's put this a little more reasonable. Anybody ever been struck by lightning before? Anybody? Okay, nobody's been struck by lightning that I see. Okay. Or you're just like, your your hand's fried. I can't lift up my hand, you know? Um, You have a one in one million chance of getting struck by lightning. One in a million chance, okay? So, again, to win the Powerball, one in 292 million. To get struck by lightning, again, you have, uh, before you'd win the Powerball, you'd likely get struck by lightning 292 times, okay? That's what the odds say. Or, or, get this. In order to have this this planet with the life and all that, that means you would have to get struck by lightning 60,000 times, okay? That is the same odds of coming up with a planet uh, that that has life on it as we know. Now, this is an insane number, 1 in 60 billion. Well, we're going to look at the beginning. The beginning of Scripture, the very first verse in the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Goes on and says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. Now, now there there's right in here is something that many people do not consider. And it's it's what theologians call the gap theory. The gap theory is that we don't know what happened between verse 1 and verse 2. We have no clue, right? We just read it. We read through it like, okay, this is great information, whatever. But listen to how it's phrased. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Then it says the earth was formless and empty. We have no idea how long the universe existed between these two verses. It could have been moments. It could have been millions or billions of years. We have absolutely no idea. Anyone that claims they have an idea, has an idea about this really has no idea what they're talking about. They're just making a speculation without any observable evidence to back the claims that they have. So, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, this must have been a miraculous thing. God says, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. So, the main argument that we tend to come up against And the conversation of science in the Bible is this. Did God create everything? Did he create everything or not? There's two main worldviews, okay? The one main worldview is this. Yes, God created everything. The other is over here. Nope, God didn't do it. You know, that's the two main. Now, now there's some deviations over here. They say, well, we don't know if it was God, but we think some intelligent creature, some intelligent being created, but that there was a creation event. So that's the two sides. And the calculations that both sides perform will come out vastly different. One of the things that they cannot agree on is the age of the earth. And many people have heard some of these ideas and arguments. And you can spend your entire life trying to figure out how old everything is. And here's what I know. And this is the only fact that I can stand firm on is this. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. You don't know. I don't know. None of us really know. On one hand... Uh, some people, you know, they, they come up with these ideas of how old or how young it is, and any conclusion is ultimately based on assumptions that were based on other assumptions that were based on other assumptions. And so, so we look at this, and we don't really know. And we read Scripture, and we see things, we see evidences, but, but we don't really know all the details about it because here's the thing. The main purpose of the Bible was not to teach us Science, but here in your notes, the focal point of the Bible is Jesus. Like that, that's really what it all points to. I've heard even people who follow Christ fighting and hating each other because of differing opinions on the creation process. And I'm like, nowhere in scripture does it say that you have to believe a certain prescribed idea around creation in order to get into heaven. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so that's the bottom line here. Everything in Scripture was leading up to the birth, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it all is there to tell his story, not to simply be a science book or a mathematics textbook. But still, there's a lot that we have extracted from Scripture, and there's a lot more to be learned from Scripture. So the the two main arguments are out there is that many people believe that the there, that we live on a young earth that is only around 6,000 years old. That's what many people, uh, believers of the Bible, what many of them will say. On the other hand, other people say that the earth is around 4.5 billion years old. In fact, if you ask almighty Google, that's what Google says. 4.5 billion years old. Ultimately, what it comes down to is this. It doesn't really matter. Like, what difference does it make in the grand scheme of things? Again, there's a gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis, Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2, and we don't know how much time elapsed there. We have no possible way of knowing that or understanding it. Here's what Job says 
Job is the oldest book written in Scripture. Again, the Bible is a, is a compilation of books. Job is one of them, and even though it's not the first book in chronological order, it is the oldest, and look what it says in chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when everything was created? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundation and laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Where were you, Mr. Scientist? Where were you, Mr. You know, anybody? Like, where were we? We, we? we speak very authoritatively on things that we don't have adequate evidence and when we do so that becomes dogma. Another argument that is, is often made when we discuss creation or the origins of the universe is, is how long did it take? Right, if you read the Genesis account, um, it, it says, or it implies at least, that it took six days. Six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. And so many people on the scientific side say, how could that be? How could all of this be created in, in only six days? How can we see light from stars that lo- long burned out, you know, millions of years ago, but because of the travel of light, we see the light of a star that doesn't even exist any longer? How can this be? Is this a literal six days, or is it not? So, here, here's the thing that I just kind of think about when I ponder these things, is if God is creating a universe with trillions of stars and planets, is he basing the time off of the rotation of the planet that we're on or not? Like, I don't know. Like, I can't answer that question. Like, he says a day, but, like, I don't know. Like, like is, this, is this a day, like, our day? Like, in the Bible, even, it says to God, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Like, I don't know. Is this figurative? Is it literal? I believe, whenever I read Scripture, I want to take it as literal as I possibly can each and every time. I would rather fail on taking it literal than taking it, you know, subjectively. But here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know what he was basing it on. If here's God, you know, and, and he's creating this huge universe, he's like, I'm going to base time on this right here, this little speck in the whole thing. That's a day. I don't know. Was it a galactic day? Was it a universe day? Was it some other kind of day that we have no idea? I don't know. I wasn't there, and neither were you. Here's the thing that I do know is this. If God could create everything with a word, as he said, let there be light, and there was light. If God could create everything with a word, he could do it in six days, but he could also do it in six seconds, or he could also do it in six billion years. Like, like he could do it however he wants, and ultimately we don't we don't really know, and yet we get so frustrated about these things. Speaking of time, you know the most accurate clock is in the world? Anybody know what the most accurate clock is in the world? It's an atomic clock, okay? I'll answer it for you. An atomic clock. <laughs> atomic clocks are the most accurate. Uh, they have some others that are kind of coming close, but the atomic clock, the, the way an atomic clock works is, is it measures the microwave frequencies from an atom and, and they say that it's so precise, it will only lose one second of time for every 100 million years. That's how accurate an atomic clock is, okay? So think about this. There is a clock that we have that is based on, like, this small, tiny, tiny thing, an atom, something that we've actually never even seen with our own eyes. But we have a clock that is based on that. Now let's think about a cosmic level. On a cosmic level, well, one thing that we know of is we know of a, of a light year, right? A light year. And this is the amount, the distance that light travels in a year. Let's be clear. A light year is a, is a measurement of distance, not a measurement of time. But yet we know exactly how 
far it goes. It's very precise, 186,000 miles every second. This is how they determine now the distance of a meter by dividing what a light year is, okay, if you can fathom that. 186,000 miles per second. It's consistent. So we can set our clock by that. We can set our clock by an atom. Think about other things that we set our clock by. The rotation of an earth is, is a day, right? So every, every day, the earth rotates. Every 24 hours, the earth rotates. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, it just rotates. It's consistent. It always has been consistent, at least in our known history. And then, not only does it rotate, but the earth also rotates around our, our star, the sun. And how long does it take the earth to go around the star? A year. 365.14. No, 0.25, 365 and a quarter days it takes to go around that. And every four years, those quarters add up, and we end up with a leap year, right? So that's how that works, if you didn't know that already. Um, so it's consistent, though. We can set our clocks by it. We can set our calendars by it. Um, you know, so the, the earth rotates every 24 hours. The earth goes around the sun. Now, you know how fast it's going? The earth is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. And then the earth is rotating around the sun at 66,000 miles an hour. And then the sun is traveling at 483,000 miles an hour. And the sun is doing its own loop around the galaxy, which takes 230 million years to do. It's called a galactic year. That's how long it takes the earth, I mean, sorry, the sun to go around our galaxy. So why am I saying all this? Because think about this. We're living inside a clock. Isn't that crazy? Like we're lit from, from the molecule to the planet to the solar system to the sun to all of these things. It's, it's like we're living inside a pocket watch. It's like, like think about that. Now, now think about this. If you came across a clock, what would you think? I, I mean, like, you know, oh, you know what? A bomb must have went off. And out of the bomb came a pocket watch. Out of the bomb, out of the rubble came a Rolex. See, in your notes, our universe is a precise clock that keeps perfect time. It's like a timepiece. No one sees a watch and assumes an explosion. You see a watch, and what do you assume? You assume that there was a watchmaker. You assume that there was a craftsman. The average Rolex has 220 parts. Who put those together? They don't just light off cherry bombs and Rolexes come together. See, there is a craftsman that puts them together. So the first assumption when you see something that's created is that there had to be a creator. As it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. So ultimately, the age of the earth and how long it took to make, it doesn't really matter. Really what matters is who created it. Really, that, that's what it matters. Now, the alternative view to this is, uh, is the Big Bang Theory. All the leading physicists from Princeton now say that today's Big Bang Theory is a kind of patchwork of disconnected ideas. So their solution is called the String Theory, which is like multiple Big Bangs. And there's more patchwork of theories and disconnected ideas. And in order for String Theory to be true, you need to have infinite parallel universes. And you need to have 28 dimensions instead of the three dimensions that we currently have. And quantum gravity, which is unproven, has to be a thing. And, and more things that all have to line up. So much so that if we're honestly uh, truthful about the issues that the Big Bang and string theory actually no longer even qualify as adequate science, but they've evolved into religion. Because we believe something without adequate evidence and experimentation. We believe it because, well, we can't accept the fact that there's a God, so we have to come up with another solution that could have maybe gotten us to the same point. See, 
honestly, if we're true, if we're if we're truthful about this, it takes a huge amount of faith to believe that there's no creator. In fact, I believe it takes more faith to believe in the probability of something happening by chance than it does to think that there was a creator behind it all. See, because all of these theories, there's no reasonable, practical way for them to gather any evidence to substantiate their claims. There's a lot of assumptions that are going on here. And you notice it takes more faith to believe in a universe made by chance than one made by a creator. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, It says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Though everything God made, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal powers, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Underline that last line. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. See, we can see his handiwork. We can see it. We can see it in the beauty of creation. There must be an artist behind the beauty. There must be an engineer behind the engineering. There must be a master craftsman behind all of creation, all of it leads up, all of this stuff leads up to building this marvel of mechanics, a clock that is unparalleled, that is far more accurate than any clock that humans can come up with. The, the complexity of our, of our earth and our solar system and our universe is beyond comprehension. And there's all these rules, these rules of science, these rules of physics, these rules of astronomy, but no rule exists by chance. Even, you know, in your notes, even claiming that there are laws in the universe demonstrates a need for a lawmaker. See, laws don't just form themselves. Laws always need a lawmaker. See, who determined this law? Who determined that things were going to operate in the way that they would? Now, all of this still falls a little bit short. Because here, what we're left with is a giant mechanical clock. We're left with atoms and Stars and lights and planets that can keep time. And, and that's great. You wind it up and it, and it goes and it goes and it goes. And that's great. But God went a step further and he creates life. See, the earth is the only planet known to host life. In the universe, they, they estimate that it contains 100 to 200 billion galaxies. 100 to 200 billion galaxies. Now, first off, I'm like, that's a pretty wide range there. 100, it's, like, it's like if you're buying, say, a, a small house, and it's going to cost you, say, $100,000, but the realtor is like, come to closing with $100,000 or $200,000. It, it'll be one of those two. Like, wait a minute, that's a vast difference between the two. And we're like, well, there's 100 to 200 billion, not stars, but galaxies. In fact, the Hubble uh, Deep Space Telescope examined a point in space uh, I believe it was in uh, the, the Big Dipper, the size of a pinhead held at arm's length. So imagine the size of the pinhead held at arm's length, and that, the amount of sky that that is blocking, they counted thousands of galaxies in that space. Not stars, but galaxies of stars. Scientists estimate that there's one to 10 trillion planets. I mean, again, what a vast range here. It's between one and 10. Like, okay, thank you, brilliant scientists, for telling us that NASA's counted and confirmed 5,000 of them or something like that. But here's the thing. If life is random, it is unlikely for a planet to actually be able to sustain life, let alone to be able to actually create it. If the Earth was 10% older or younger, 
It couldn't sustain life because of the gravitation, uh, the, the gravity on it, because of the magnetic fields, because of the position to the sun and the position to the moon, and, and having enough elements on the earth to sustain it, and the atmosphere, and the size and the position of our planets in relation to other planets, and then the fact that we have this a uh, uh, very similar temperature year-round. Yeah, it gets cold here in the winter and warm in the summer, but neither is enough to totally annihilate mankind, and, and the interdependence of all living and non-living matter, and the fact that the radiation isn't too high, and we could go on and on and on about the fact that we live on a planet that was amazingly created to support life and life in abundance. If all of these factors were vastly different, life on earth would be just entirely impossible. And, and, and the odds of all of these factors coming together at once is so small that it's beyond the ability for our minds to even comprehend it. And that's just creating the environment. It's not even creating life. That's just the environment for life to exist. But it says in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning the word already existed. The word he's referring to is Jesus Christ. In the beginning the word already existed. And the word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. And God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. And then in verse 4, the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. See, life is a miracle. We can understand a little bit of the elements of, of reproduction, but the origin of life coming from non-living matter has absolutely no explanation at all. How does life form? And see, it's not just life in an isolated sense. This is life abundantly. No one has been successful in reproducing this event. We can put all of the ingredients for life together in identical conditions to the very beginning, and yet it does not produce life. And yet we walk outside, and we're surrounded by life. From the smallest insects, to the tiny blade of grass, to the birds flying in the air, to all of these things, to the fact that we can live and breathe and think. See, the origin of life is a miracle that has even the greatest minds stumped. So what was it? Was God creating Adam as the first man? Or was a single RNA protein itself being able to duplicate itself and begin a chain of events that led to organic life? In either sense, both of them require a certain amount of faith. But I would argue that it takes a lot less faith to believe that there's a creator than it does that something just magically happened from some inexplicable circumstance. See, life is something that can't be fabricated. See, we as humans, we can design things. We can make things. We can build things. But you know what we can't do? Just like Geppetto with Pinocchio, he couldn't give it life. He couldn't breathe the life into it. You know what they say the closest thing to life is that man has created? You know what the closest thing to life is that we've made is? A computer virus. Man, we should be so proud of ourselves, shouldn't we? Computer virus, because it replicates on its own and it spreads through its own, causes havoc on its own. It's not life, but that's the closest thing that we've been able to create. It isn't really alive because, in your notes, only God has the power to give something life. And yet we're surrounded by life. Everywhere we look, from the tiniest insect to the blades of grass, there is life in all of its abundance, abundance around us. And you know what we do? We take it for granted. We take it for granted. Oh, there's a, you know, spider in my house. I'm going to kill the spider, you know. I'm going to step on this. I'm going to mow the lawn. I'm going to do it. Like we take for granted the fact that there's life abundantly around us, something that cannot be replicated, and yet there's not just one form of life. 
There's hundreds of thousands of forms of life. I believe there's something like 50,000 varieties just of beetles. Like, why do we need so many beetles in this world for crying out loud? We'll close with this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us up from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. See, here's the interesting thing. Is that even with life all around us, even with the abundant life that is, that is surrounding us each and every day, even though we are alive, many of us feel dead inside. Many of us feel like something is missing. Animals aren't pondering the meaning of life. They're not looking for the grand scheme of things. They're not examining whether or not there's a creator or not. And yet we are because we feel dead inside because sin brings death. But Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone brings life. See, this is a different kind of life. This is not life that a flower has or a tree has or an animal has. This is a different kind of life. This is a spiritual life. This is a part of us that was dead inside, and Jesus says that he will bring alive. This is something unique in all of the natural world, something unique that we have a longing for purpose. We have a longing for meaning. We have a longing for fulfillment. If everything in this world was by chance, if everything in the universe was just a cosmic hiccup, then why are we even here, and why do we want to know why we're here? Why do we have a desire to seek out the divine? Why do we have the desire to do good and not to do evil? Because God's law is written on our heart, and whenever there's a law, there's a lawmaker. Why do we look for purpose and meaning and fulfillment? Why do we look for forgiveness? Animals don't look for these things. Why do we seek out healing, something that only God can provide? Because the creator of the universe, he has created not only everything that we can see and experience, but he's also created created life, and he wants you to have the abundant life. He wants you to live in life that he has given you each and every single day. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you that you have come to give us life, and life in its abundance. And we can sit here and we can marvel and wonder at the amazing miracles of the world in which we live. Things that we cannot even begin to comprehend. Our minds are just not big enough to grasp the complexities of the world and the universe. Or something as small as an atom. But we thank you that you are the architect. You are the builder. You are the creator. You are the life giver. And you offer us life in its fullness. Perhaps you're here and you don't know Jesus is your Lord. I believe that he's inviting you into his family now. He wants to give you that same life, life in its abundance. If you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says if you say with your mouth, Jesus, you're my Lord, that you will be saved. So won't you call on his name? Won't you say, Jesus, you are my Lord and I put my trust in you and you alone. God, we put our trust in you. There is no one else that we can trust and rely on. There's no other evidence other than the evidence of you. 
Everything else falls short. Every other theory pales in comparison to understanding who you are and that you've loved us and that you've made us in your image, that you are a creator. And that's why we create, that you're loving and that's why we love, that you are a God of good and that's why we pursue that. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this world that you have made, carefully crafted for our enjoyment. We thank you for giving us life and breath, the ability to see and hear and breathe and feel and love and be loved and forgive and be forgiven. Lord, we thank you for all of these things. You are a good God, a powerful God. How magnificent and marvelous is your creation, and we put our trust and our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.